Hey, everybody. You got Keith Billis here. I'm live in the lab. Oh, I'm live. I'm live in the Business Athlete Performance Lab, bringing you in a little bit of soulful stride. Some Will Harrison. We like to play music here in this, in this place. And before we bring in our guest, Mark Bartel, thought I'd uh, play in some soulful stride just to bring a Monday in after a weekend. Again, as an entrepreneur, we don't know what weekends are, though, do we? We've heard me say it before, but Friday blends into Saturday, blends into Sunday, blends into Monday. They're all the same. How's your weekend? Mine wasn't bad. I don't know. I spent it with the Uber hat on, driving the kids around. At one point this weekend, I was driving in circles, actually. I felt myself just going there and back, there and back, see how far it is. Life of a dad, life of a dad entrepreneur, fitting the kids into the schedule and driving them around. That's what you do. That was my weekend. And it brings us to Monday. Coming a little later into the lab today, sometimes previous meetings go longer than others, and sometimes schedules don't always align with how technology wants to align. Today, we're coming in a little later than noon central time, which is our normal time here in minus five GMT, live in the lab with myself, Keith Billis, and guests along the way. This week, we have a full schedule of guests, so I invite you to check us out on live on YouTube. We drop content on X, drop content on LinkedIn along the way, but you'll find us live streaming on YouTube. And you also know we're talking about our transformation experience 24, coming up around the corner, not that long from now, less than three months, frankly. January 1st, it starts, ends December 31st. Looking for 10 people, not 10 anymore. We got a few people that are on the precipice of saying, hey, sign me up. I want to be part of this experience. And what's the experience you're asking? 10 lucky people or, or, or an unlucky people. It depends on how you look at it. But all kidding aside, 10, 10 lucky people are heading on a 365-day experience. 10 people. 10 people that maybe you're looking for structure in their life. Maybe have found, maybe have become lost. Maybe are... Looking to join a team because they're not feeling part of a team. Maybe they work remotely. Maybe you work remotely. You're like, ah, I feel disconnected from my team. I like my job, but I feel disconnected. All right, why don't you come hang out with us? Come hang out with us. Let us help you put that structure into your life you desire. Let us bring that wellness into your life that you desire. Let's go for a walk together. Let's go have a walking meeting. Kill two birds with one stone. Let's weave some AI into your life so you could... Find yourself saving 30 to 45 to 60 minutes a day, not to give back to your employer, but to put back into yourself. That's the philosophy here when we weave AI into the conversation within the Business Athlete Performance Lab is the A also stands for athletic, but also AI, because if you're going to leave that aside, you're just losing out, right? So we would teach you how to weave that into your life, enhance your productivity, give back to yourself. 365 days, team together, learning how to be productive, learning what wellness, nutrition, fitness, structure, taking care of your human machine. And oh, by the way, along the way, we're going to meet up in Panama, we'll climb a mountain together, just walk up the mountain for the day, get to the top, see the Atlantic Pacific oceans, head on down, then we'll go back to work, go back to our lives and proceed together as a team. Then we'll meet again in the Azores in the Atlantic, go climb to the top of Mount Pico, stay the night, look at the stars, wonderful experience. Then head back down, head back to our lives be a team, make our way. We're now halfway through the year. It's June of 2024. Looking back, we've accomplished so much. We've moved forward. Then we're going to regroup. We're going to regroup for the big dog. Kilimanjaro. Yep. We're going to hit the Kilimanjaro end of September in the fall. And I climb. So 12 months from now, 12 months from this experience, 12 months from this show right now with Mark Bartel, our guest coming up, 12 months from now, we will have climbed and finished Kilimanjaro. Imagine how you're going to feel 12 months from now after having accomplished all those things. Knowing that just around the corner as you're wrapping up 2024, we're going to head together as a group, all 10 of us, to Kenya. We're going to head to Kenya, spend some time with the rhinos, with the hippos, with the elephants, with the giraffe, with the zebra. We're going to go on a safari retreat and then make our way to Shayla Beach, Lamu Island. That's the ambition. So 
If you're interested, come join, come knock on our door, come DM me on LinkedIn, come send me a message, come to our website, come and sign up and ask questions about Transformation 2024 for the League of Business Athletes. Why don't we bring in our first guest, our only guest on today's show. We only have one guest per show, as we know. We're going to bring him in today. Let's bring in Mark Bartell. Let's talk to you about Mark Bartell, though. So when, when I looked at his brief, what really inspired me about Mark was he said he started out on, his, on, on an entrepreneurial journey here, inspired by a quote after the tragic death of Chadwick Boseman. He said, I realized I wasn't utilizing his full potential. And he set a six-month goal to quit his corporate job and fully him immerse himself in AI. In February 2020, he left his job to embrace entrepreneurship, which has been both challenging and enlightening an experience best shared in a detailed conversation, which I'm really excited to talk to you, talk to him, talk to Mark about. And if you don't know who Chadwick Boseman is, Boseman, Black Panther, great Marvel movie. Let's bring in Mark, Mark Bartel. Welcome to Live in the Lab. Thank you for having me, Keith. Great to be here. So I want to jump right into the conversation. Your inspiration. You were inspired by Chadwick. Did you leave the movie and then life went on? You were a fan of his and then he's too young to pass. It's such a inspiring individual, what inspires you to move forward and create your own and on your entrepreneurial journey? So there are a few different elements that came together at the right time. And Chadwick Boseman was the final domino to push over what I needed to really get going on things. I think, so I was raised, I'm born in Canada, family moved me to the United States when I was three years old. I was taught to do all these successful middle-class things, get good grades, get to a good college, maybe get a master's degree, get a good job, and you'll be good to go. And I did, I did all those things. I went to NC State in Raleigh, North Carolina for my undergrad in bioengineering. I was pre-med at the time. Eventually stopped being pre-med, which is a much longer conversation. Did a master's at Duke University. Time of my life there, honestly. From there, I got my first corporate job. I was up in New York City, the greater NYC area, rather, working as the best way to describe it would be an internal sales consultant with a really prestigious research firm up in the New England area. And I was there for about two-ish years. And then I think February, 2021 during COVID was when I finally um, walked away from it and started my company. But to answer your question specifically, there's a couple factors. One, one, I'd read a ton of books. I'd read a lot of cool biographies about people that did interesting things. And the common thread was how little security most of these people had. We tend to notice them when they're at the high highs, and this could be politicians, this could be actors, this could be athletes, this can be anybody. But what people don't notice is how much time is spent down in, I don't want to say the slums, but down in the harder parts of that journey. We notice the highs and we conveniently forget those. Um, so that was one component. Another one is during COVID, I had all this free time. And because I was trained as an engineer, I was working on a more soft skills type of job, I found ways to integrate my engineering skills and build automations within Excel and all these tools to break down to analyze data from the teams until those skills became an indispensable part of the teams that I was on. Like I would come into my job and people who'd been selling for longer than I've been alive were told to listen to me. And the way that I broke in and established credibility was by saying, Hey, you have all this sales data that's not really being you're not doing anything with it. It's just sitting there. So let me build some systems that can draw better conclusions that can lead to actionable insights. And by the time I got really good at that, we become a much more accepted and respected part of the team. But while this is going on, 
I am getting a feel for leveraging those types of tools, those processes to make my day job easier. But I've got a couple of friends who are trying to maintain their businesses. And some of them were restaurants. Some of them were just online mom and pop stores. COVID is absolutely ravaging their businesses. And I sat there and thought, these guys are bleeding employees. They're not getting them customers. Surely there's got to be some piece of technology out there that can fix at least some of these problems. So I started to teach myself how to build chatbots with ManyChat. I got plugged into the chatbot community, if we can call it that. And I got my feet with it. I think I had my first unofficial project in July of 2020. I had a lot of fun with it. It lasted about a month and a half. The customer was pretty happy with it. And from there, I started thinking, okay, what would it look like if I did this full time? Do I have enough money to last me? I didn't want to take on investors because that just, that's, we, we can write book that later, but I wanted to bootstrap it. So I saved up enough money to give myself a good runway for thought everything. Honestly, how much time would I have before I got a client at this price point, at that price point, if I moved back down to North Carolina, which I later did, if I stayed in New York, see all those I, I must have thought through every possible permutation that I could have before finally making a jump. And Chad Bozen, as you mentioned, was the final domino that fell because he was a really strong Christian. I didn't realize that until after he after he passed away. But I remember sitting in, I was in Quebec City at the time on vacation for the first time in a long time. And so quick story, a buddy of mine, she was on a visa, I want to say an H-1B in the United States. And... It just didn't get renewed for various reasons. Her company decided not to renew it. So she had Canadian PR from another chapter of her life. And because I'm a Canadian citizen by birth, I was one of those few people that had the legal access to cross the border during COVID. So I helped her move up there, helped her get scored away in Ottawa when, as soon as she got there. And then we just basically took a week long vacation. We hit up Montreal and then we hit up Quebec City. So I'm in this, I'm in this hostel and I see a little tweet on my phone that said Chadwick Boseman, Black Panther star and dead at 43. So I start looking into it. Turns out, yeah, he had stomach cancer. He didn't tell anybody about it. All those times when he was on his press tours getting made fun of for losing weight because he was losing battle to cancer. Great job, assholes. But he gave this quote and it was from some graduation speech or something. I don't remember where exactly put it, but it was, when I die, I want to look God in the face and say, I did everything I could. Every ounce of blood, sweat, tears, every skill I could have learned, every, every ounce of potentially put in me, I tapped into all of it. And that was when I realized if I died could I realistically say that? And the answer was no. So I think that was the moment when it stopped being an if I quit my job and started being a matter of when my job is just a matter of finding how to do it. So we're four months after that, I realized the desire to quit was, it was like an emotional high and low. And I had a couple other people who for completely different reasons were doing similar jumps with their own life. Like I had a friend based in New York and her grandmother passed away and she was like, to hell with this. I want to go back down south. I want to be with my family. And she did. So there'd be a couple of moments like that where I think, yeah, I'm going to quit and it's going to be great. And then by the time Monday came around or by the time my next one-on-one with my boss came around, the high had worn off and I was back to rationalizing, not making any moves. So the day I finally walked away, an old buddy of mine from my corporate job, he read the tea leaves and he knew that I was going to make a jump pretty soon. And he asked me, so when are you leaving? And I told him, I got all this, I got all these ideas. I got all these possible outcomes that could happen. and by this time, I'd gotten really good at soliciting advice from the people that I knew would give me what I wanted, if that makes sense. Most of my American friends would tell me, go for it. This is the land of opportunity. You've got this blah. Most of my immigrant friends, most of my international friends, which I attended school with back at Duke, would say, oh, just be happy you have a job. You don't want to get in your 
U.S. green card holder, I'm since naturalized, you, you have the legal right to stay here. So just be happy of a job. You have the bills are getting paid, all that stuff. Just stay low. Now's not a good time to start a business. And so I asked this guy, here's what my buddies have told me. And he got really serious. Like this guy's normally the joker of the party kind of guy. Normally the one that you can take seriously, but more like a funny kind of uncle way. He says outlandish stuff and defends it while still intoxicated and somehow inexplicably makes sense. He's one of those guys. But he got really serious the first time ever. And he said, Mark, do not listen to anybody who tells you not to take a jump. I've worked with you for two plus years now, see what you're capable of. I see the ambition that you have and I know you can do it. So don't look back. Announce your resignation as soon as you can and wish you all the best. And that was, I think, the final emotional push that I needed to get things going. So later that day, while the emotions were still high, I had the one on one with my boss and I told him it's been real, it's been good, but I got to try this. And to my boss's credit, he was super supportive. And I originally thought that I would go and it would be pretty anticlimactic and that was it. But he had a really good, he had a really good goodbye party plan for me where he told me, pick your favorite 12 to 20 people or so, say 6 p.m. on a Tuesday or whatever. We'll need a Zoom call and it'll be great. And I told them specifically because I got really tired of all those. I got tired of all those emails where people would be like, hey, guys, I'm leaving and I'm going to miss you all. And let's keep in touch and blah, blah, blah. Guys, I barely know half of you. And I certainly don't want to hear from you again. Maybe like a fifth of you I'd like to hear again in my next chapter of life. But if I'm being totally transparent, no, I don't want to just send out an empty email and have a Zoom chat. Because this was, again, during COVID, full of 40 people. Again, half of whom I don't know. And it's you have one conversation where people are asking awkward stuff like, so when are you leaving? Or do you enjoy your new job? Or what's your favorite memory here? And then you got to talk about some happy hour story you had. It's, it's a mess. So I wanted to bypass all that and really only say goodbye to people that genuinely meant something to me. And I genuinely wanted to hear from on the way out. And my boss was totally on board with that. He said, sure, give me a list. And we'll personally invite him. And he did. And it was amazing. So to this day, I'm still friends with him. But that was... Uh, my last day, I think, was early 2021, and I've been going at this ever since. So really long answer to question, but yeah, that's the story of how I got to where it was, what compelled me to move and come. So I congratulate you on the move. I, I, it takes a lot of courage to step away from a consistent paycheck. It takes a lot of courage to step out on your own and say, I'm going to go and tackle what I want to tackle. How did you not quiet quit? And what is your feet and what is your, what's your opinion on that term that has Come into the world here, it seems like in the last, however, it's been 12 to 18 months, this idea of quiet quitting. You're now a business owner. Granted, I believe you're your own solopreneur right now. But as a business owner, what does that mean to you when you hear somebody saying they're quietly quitting? There's a few different schools of thought that come to mind when I hear about this. The reason I did quiet quit was for two reasons. One is I was raised to do the best that I can in whatever job I can. Whether I like the job I want, whether I hate the job I want, I got to put my best forth my best foot forward in all that I do. And that was the first reason. Second is my boss wouldn't let me. My boss was, he had very high expectations for everybody on his team. And he would crack the whip until we met those expectations. It was never a work harder, work until late hours. It was more so a relationally driven. I know what you're capable of. And I know the work you just gave me is subpar. So do better next time. So it was, there's a couple different components to it. But I think... I can see the rationale for quiet quitting. Quite frankly, I don't think it needs to have a trendy new term on LinkedIn. 
I also think this is how people have been. This is going to sound so bad. This is how the average person does work for most of their lives anyway. If you see work as nothing more than a contractual obligation, which is a perfectly fair way to do it, then you're paid to do this, then you do that. I think the idea that we're being told to do all this more and blah, 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 and we're treating you a family, there is an implicit social contract that is written between the employer and the employee. And when that's not met, then quiet quitting comes into place, I think. If you're going to tell employees that they're family and you care about them and you have all these benefits and then you cut them all as soon as it's financially convenient to do, then yeah, what's going to happen in your culture is people are going to stop caring. People are going to lose motivation and they're going to start quiet quitting. If you want people to stop quiet quitting, then you just simply, in my opinion, need to create an organization or a culture that is that gives people a reason to care, gives people a reason to go above and beyond. And one thing I've noticed while working with a ton of small business owners, as well as a couple larger corporations, is that kind of environment is easier to create within small businesses because yes, you have more, you have more responsibilities, but you also have a bit more jurisdiction over the type of environment that you want to create. Like fear, if you're working at a Fortune 500 at a Google or an IBM or a Facebook, you as a manager, you can have jurisdiction over your people. And that's fine. And you can create whatever subculture you can, but you're still within a much larger ecosphere of another company. And the orders that come down from above, whether that's hire these guys, fire these guys, or whatever, you as a manager have less jurisdiction over them. I see arguments for quiet quitting. I see arguments against it. I think that's just how like that's just how contracts go, quite frankly. And if you want to create an organization that bypasses quiet quitting, it's on you to create that. I think implicitly expecting people to go above and beyond at least in this day and age, I think is unrealistic unless you give them a very explicit reason to do Yeah, I think you need to, if your people are quite quitting on you, you've lost all respect. The yep. me metaphor I like to use in, in the business athlete performance lab, I always bring it back to sports, is you've lost the locker room. Fuck, you're just a shitty coach. I'm not listening to you. I have nothing to hear what you have to say because you don't know what you're talking about and you've lost me. That's if you're at that point, it's probably up to you as perhaps the leader to step aside as well or look in your own mirror. Yeah, I think of um, myself as a high school swimmer and there were people on swim team who loved to swim. There were people who were just there to get exercise. There was a cluster of, oh, I'm going to say mean girls. There was a cluster of those people who would, they'd walk their miles, they'd cruise their laps pretty easily. And it's, these guys are not here for the same reason that the best are here for. And the coach was usually able to discern who were there to swim versus who were there just for social activities and they reacted accordingly. So. Yeah. You, you made a comment about contractual obligation between employer and employee and people go and do their job. They get paid for their time and, and, and off they go. That's plain and simple. And it's, it makes a lot of sense. I'm going to draw a relation to what's happening in society right now with tipping. Did society wake up one day and say that I have to tip you for just doing your job? I think the term that I've heard used is tip creep or something like that. Yes. And this is, there's a really fascinating video on this by, I think his name is Adam Conover on YouTube. He's from Call Jumer. He's got this whole sub-series called Adam Ruins Everything. And he does like a five-minute video specifically on tipping culture in America and how it got to where it is. So I've traveled abroad a little bit last. I mean, I was in South Africa a week and a half ago. I was in Europe last year. And the excessive tipping definitely is an American thing. And I really think it's just companies pushing to see what they can get away with. And they pay their people less. So they've effectively, in most instances, Within, we go on Twitter, you go on Instagram, you go on all these places, you will see employers and employees going at for 
various reasons. Maybe they're not getting paid enough. Maybe their benefits aren't good enough, et cetera. Tipping is one of those things where the employer has forced the employee to comply with them and push this onto the general public. Hey, I don't get paid enough. So therefore I got to ask, shamelessly ask for a 20% tip baseline. And I'm just going to flip this little iPad over. It's just going to ask you a few questions. How we got there. I think it's a natural conclusion of how the restaurant industry has been set up since the beginning. And, you know, with wages not increasing at the same rate as inflation, I think it's, it's yeah, this, where we are now is exactly where you'd expect to if you just watch society unfold. I, I tend to tip less when I'm asked for it all the time. <laughs> Me too. Because it's, well, no, if I'm a smart enough human being and individual that if I'm really appreciative of your service and what you've delivered for me, I'm more than happy to tip you, which is the, what you normally would do. But to tip you for doing your job seems somewhat bizarre to me, frankly. So let's leave tipping aside. I want to go back. Let's continue your journey from corporate life because I think there's, no, not I think. I know there's a lot of people that are sitting in a chair at work, corporate life, wanting to be an entrepreneur, finding out the path to being an entrepreneur, planning like you did. And then you said, hey, ChatGPT comes in the market. You witness this opportunity and you go and you create not only chatbots, conversational marketing systems, but a ChatGPT course called Ultimate ChatGPT. Ultimate ChatGPT Mastery, yes. Yeah, so talk about how you arrived at lining up chatbots as your target, ChatGPT courses as your target, and talk about how you arrived at that conclusion to say, I'm going after this in this market. Sure. So part of it was just really fortuitous timing. I started building chatbots for the first time way back in, I think, late 2019 was when I first started dabbling in it. It was at the suggestion of a friend of mine who said, hey, you're an engineer. Because at the time I was trying to sell, this entrepreneurial gig was I was trying to sell uh, Russell Brunson's click funnels. You could sell to somebody right. and you'd get a $40 commission per month in perpetuity. And I was one of those guys. Never made success with it, but he had this Rolodex from his one funnel away challenge where you would have people that you could hire to do things. So I hired this guy and aside from the job that he did for me, we became really good friends. And a couple months later, he said, hey, you're an engineer. You've got a really analytical mind. You should try building chatbots. So he gave me all these resources and said, I'll see you in a couple of weeks up on with it. So I think that was on a Thursday. I think Monday, I came back to him with a functioning chatbot. He's like, wow, okay. So we started feeding me a couple of clients and that was when I really started I took all that money, invested into much more advanced chatbot courses and all those things. And that was, I think that was the start of my foray into the AI space. I started plugging in open source machine learning tools. I did a little bit of stuff with Microsoft Azure. I played around with, I think, Dialogflow based out of Google. And when ChatGPT came out, it was just a completely different ballgame. Because first of all, now everybody was talking about AI. Everybody had an opinion on it. Every Guardian op-ed journalist was going to talk about how it's either Skynet or a curing cancer or some combination in between, or the best ones, the parts that really irritated me, or these people who would like, they'd have a completely normal interaction with ChatGPT and they'd write a business insider article about it. I asked ChatGPT to do my homework. It didn't do a good job. It's like you, you public this and it's now out there. And there's thousands of people who've experienced this as well. For some reason, sorry, I, I got to stop writing about the journalist side of AI. But just aside, oh. yes, it's, that's a, a similar sentiment. But I was on I was on a business cruise this past January, and as soon as I would tell people I build AI, I build machine learning tools, they were always asking me about ChatGPT. So I was on one of the beaches in the Virgin Islands, I think, where a couple of people were talking about course designing, mm -hmm. and that was really where the idea came about. 
I just asked one of these ladies, she's done tons of podcasts, she's done tons of courses, and she said, I asked her if I built ChatGPT course, could we sell that? And she said, absolutely, we could sell that. We could sell tons and tons of that. And she had friends who were doing that very thing to some of their higher-end clients, our ticket sales and all that type of stuff. So the idea first came about, I think this past January, and this was my first time building a course. So it took me a couple months to finally get the ball rolling, but when I finally did, I think my first class had around 10 students or so. I got good feedback and I haven't done any more since then, but because I've had a couple other serious projects that took up most of my time, but I'm hoping to launch a new batch pretty soon and integrate the feedback from the first batch to the second. What was your impression when you first saw ChatGPT? A lot, though, that big old large language model was it November 30th, I believe it was when it was released to the public. What was your, so somebody who had been playing with, I guess, what, what is it? Intent-based chatbots, right? So you, mm-hmm. you built more on intent and more on trying to figure out what somebody's going to ask and say, and you yep. draw there's like A connects to B, if this, then that. So that was one system. You go to bed one night, you wake up and somebody's like, oh, yeah, hey, look, Mark, there's this massive dictionary of words that's a smart being that can help you build chatbots. And then the first moment you played with it. The first task I think I ever gave it was to write a goodbye letter to a friend of mine that was moving out. And I had a couple different voices I wanted to try. I asked for the normal ones, like some famous actor. Then I tried Donald Trump and a couple other, a couple other folks. And you start to see over time how the feedback of the model is being changed based off the outputs. Like after a certain point, it would refuse to talk about things in the voice of Donald Trump or Andrew Tate because he was rising in popularity back then and all that stuff. So my first question about it was like, okay, how advanced is this? How complex is it? One of the cool things we can ask it to do. I was also curious if it would impact building chatbots and all the other AI tools that were out there. And I think that was the first question everybody had as soon as they saw it was, well, this replaced my job. And I think it's super trendy, especially now to harp on chat GPT because the, I think you have the technology adoption curve and we've definitely passed the peak and now we're in the trough of discipline and eventually you'll reach a point where, where it stabilizes. So seeing a lot of hype around it, the entrepreneur and we realize there's definitely an opportunity around this, if not to properly leverage it for my business, which I do, but also to teach other people how to leverage it for their business as well. There was, I think like 90% opportunity, 10% of curiosity slash apprehension about what I was doing. If the claims about it were true, all those types of things. And so just diving it in first and figuring out which is fact, which is fiction. And that was my first, my thoughts were what I just described. And my first response was, okay, let's get to the bottom of it. Let's see what we can do with it. And you've explored beyond chat GPC now. I'm going to suspect you've played with all the other different large language models. And do you yes. have a preference for one or the other? I do prefer chat GPT over the others. There's Bard, there's Bing, and there's chat GPT as the main ones. And, and the challenge that I had... So I think the challenge that I had with the biggest challenge I had with a lot of these models was they would tell me, Hey, we can do this. We can do that. We can do these, do those. And they would give me ideas on how to do it, but they would explicitly do it. Like I would go to, I would go and say, Hey, help me make a LinkedIn post. And they just would be able to like JGPT could make them, but all the others wouldn't explicitly give me the post. They would say, Hey, I need. I got some advice for you, but I can't actually give you the post itself. What do you say to the naysayers of chat GPT and AI and, and maybe Mark, not so much the naysayers, but the slower adopters or the ones that are reluctant to adopting this technology? I'd say it's one of those tools they say people who there's a people who use chat GPT and all these AI tools, and there's a people who choose not to, 
And the way that we've described it in social media and in a lot of the groups that I've been in is you're not going to lose your job to AI. You're going to lose your job to someone who knows how to use AI. So the people who don't want to, who are apprehensive, all those types of things, I would say it's going to be a skill that you're going to need to learn how to use. So the faster you can do that, the better off you'll be. I'm ancient. Like I remember when they went from tablet and pencil to then ink to rock on paper and then paper being invented. And then all of a sudden there is computers. And along the way, people didn't lose jobs. They lost jobs to people who knew how to use Microsoft Excel or Microsoft Word and didn't want to embrace from the typewriter to the computer. This is the same thing, is it not, Mark? It's the exact same thing. You have, especially, well, I think copywriting is the best example because I, I know a lot of copy, copywriting friends who their entire business just vaporized overnight when ChatGPT first came around. And as the technology grew, as people came to understand what it could and could not do, some people got rehired. Some people chose to use it more as a supplemental tool, which in my opinion is how you should use it. So the more you play around with it, the more you can experiment with it, the better understanding you'll know what can my people do, my employees, versus what can the system do and how do we synergize those as effectively as possible. I find it ironic that in the last week, I found myself looking for a, uh, a human being who could help me. Yes. Who could help me cut through the noise of all of the AI generated content that is continuing to, can you not, let me ask you this question. Can you tell yourself AI generated content to human generated content? You can over time determine based off the structure of the content, what is most likely AI assisted. So I would find I was doing a research project a couple of weeks ago and I'd go into a couple of forums and I'd say, Hey, questions about this particular field of technology. And a lot of people would give me normal responses, but some guy would always come in and give a really structured response. And it's okay, sir, you most likely did not sit here and think what, how to structure this response as well as you have right here. That, and there's a couple of words and phrases that chat GPT really leans on heavily and you don't notice them until you've seen them many different times. So yes, and that applies to, that applies to just about everything, honestly, the video edits, the voiceovers, all those types of things. The more you use the tool, it's like Photoshop. It's hard to distinguish what exactly the, what you, you can just tell if it has been Photoshopped, I think is the best way to describe it. And over time. As you look at more and more copy, as I taught the course, I definitely got an ear for what is good copy that's been just copy pasted from ChatGPT versus what's been built with ChatGPT and supplemented versus what was not at all used by ChatGPT. And they've got tools out there that try to ascertain it, but the two variables that most of these tools work with is sentence structure variability and vocabulary variability. So if you can game those, then you can hack whatever AI tool you've got going on with Mark Bartell fixing up his, his cords in the office there. It looks like the studio is maybe having, there you go. So Mark, what do you, we, the world is being inundated with AI generated content, both visually and yep. as a creator, is it even more difficult than it was six months ago to stand out from the rest? Are we as humans being subjected to so much content and, and, and a lot of it, frankly, is, is good. It's passable. Is it harder now to make great and excellent content? I think. So yes and no, I'll say the barrier to entry is lower than it's ever been. And that's a good thing, but yes, you are being just inundated with mediocre content. And I think the best place to go to look this up would be on YouTube. There's now tons and tons of channels that are professing science or philosophy or religion. They've got just a couple, let's say a couple hundred, maybe a couple thousand followers. And 
all their stuff is voiceover. Like it's, you can tell it's an AI generated script. It's an AI generated voice. It's completely produced by AI. And I think that stuff floated for a season, but I don't think it's sustainable in any capacity. And this one, one example, I think a more monetizable one would be the Etsy shops or those e-commerce stores. I think you can look up now how to make money with ChatGPT. And there's tons and tons of videos, make $500 a day using ChatGPT, or here's 10 ways that ChatGPT says you can use ChatGPT to make money. And there was a blogger out there, I don't remember what exactly his name was, but he specifically recorded his whole process of starting from scratch a business with the e-commerce business on Etsy or something with AI. And he documented, it only lasted a couple of months, but he documented how hard it was to actually make money with this tool because there's so many people doing the exact same thing. So the baseline for content has gone up, but what is passable, I think has gone up just a little bit as well. You also got people just learning how to sort through this stuff much more effectively. And you can, when you have 5,000 average designs made by these tools, the ones that are made with good quality tend to stand out a little bit better. At least that's what my observations have been. It reminds me back when newspapers and magazines were the predominant form of media and you'd flip to the back of the magazine, Mark, and you'd see all those ads for make 20 bucks doing this, make 25 bucks doing this, get a job in the travel industry or get a job in the cruise industry, give me 20 bucks and I'll give you a list of cruise companies. And it's, we've now moved to make 50 bucks, 500 bucks with chat GPT tools, right? It's, uh, that's exactly where we've moved. Mark, as an expert in, in, in chat bots, as an expert in, in these large language models, when you look to the future, five years from now, what do you see? I think these tools will be much more ubiquitous in the workplace. I think right now, and this is something you know, I know as a corporate as well, because again, my job was basically helping all these companies figure out their digital transformation. Mm-hmm. There's like every company in their pet dog right now is trying to figure out how to leverage AI, how to leverage digital transformation in general, what it's going to look like, what jobs it can do, all that types of stuff. Over time, over the next five years, I think most companies will start figuring that out. And what that means on a day-to-day basis is these tools will become a lot more like Microsoft Word or Calculator. Like the cool thing that I was looking at the history of like technology adoption and way back when the calculator was first designed, tons of math professors pushed back on it. And they were like, oh, this is going to erode the minds of young people to calculate things. And sure, but... That's no longer as necessary a skill as punching numbers into a calculator and doing other things with it. So five years from now, I think the tools will be more ubiquitous. Assuming this, this is a hot take, assuming they're still around. I know OpenAI specifically has had a really hard time staying profitable. Like they've got billions of money pumped in from Microsoft and a couple other organizations as well, but they've not yet figured out how to really monetize it in the way that they'd like to. Um, usership has been going down somewhat steadily, if I recall correctly, over the last couple of months. And there's a couple of articles being floated saying, oh, is OpenAI going broke or something of the sort? I don't know. I'm going to mm-hmm. imagine. I can that- assure you, OpenAI, OpenAI is not going anywhere. Yeah. Like I, if nothing else, you've let the genie out of the box at this point. It's like the Wright brothers inventing the first airplane. I don't know if their company that actually produced them is still around. I know after the Sears and Nerd moment, as they're they did all their flight stakes. They established proof concept in North Carolina. And so they initially pitched the U.S. government on leveraging that technology, the airplane technology for military, for all these things. And the U.S. government didn't really care. 
So they went to France, they went to Germany, the Europeans loved it. And then the Americans came on board and then all of a sudden, all of these designers, Alexander Graham Bell being one of them, could all of a sudden now produce an airplane. So one of the Wright brothers spent the rest of his life touring around the world on the plane. The other spent all of his time defending their intellectual property in courts because everybody can suddenly do this thing that nobody in the history of the world's been able to do. You're probably copying people's designs. And I'm, I've noticed a lot of that in the United States with a lot of these tools. People are creating AI tools that do this and that and these and those, and that's fine. But a lot of them are based on the same language learning modules. So whether OpenAI stays around or not, I'd like to believe it does because there's still top of pack, whether that's Google or Bing or whoever else, this box has been opened and this, this technology in some form is going to stick around in my opinion. It's just a matter of which company holds the keys. Does the world need an Oppenheimer moment with AI, Mark, in your opinion? That is a good question. Does something bad in the world have to happen? whether it's Canada, United States, internationally, with AI at the heart of that, of a human tragedy. I'm going to, I'm going to frame it that way. Does, before anybody sits back and takes the weaponization of AI seriously? Oh, granted, listen, we, we know that we have elections that AI is being a part of. We know that the AI is going to have a big part of the upcoming United States election. But I'm talking, some would say, Keith, there is massive tragedy based on our elections. But I'm talking loss of lives. I'm talking mm-hmm. shit going sideways because the doomsdayers were right about AI mm-hmm. taking the world sideways. It's now it's I've, I had this conversation with Captain Hoffman a couple of weeks ago. It's hard not to think that we're in the Avengers some days, isn't it? Yeah. Elon Musk is Tony Stark. The, the world government is. Yes, I said world government, right? There's this world government with somebody with more money in the world than many nations who can influence wars because he can turn the Internet off in certain parts of, of an area like it's, and then you have this rise of AI and you mm-hmm. think what it can do now, like in five years from now, in 10 years from now, come on. Like the iPhone is, think about how this device here has changed the world in the last, what is it, 17 years. Yes. So to answer that question, I want to say no, because I think the world governments are paying a lot more attention to AI than they have previous technological ideas. I remember back when I was in grad school, this was back when Zuckerberg was getting the hearing from is the Britannica scandal from the U.S. election. And there's this, I read a couple uh, thought pieces about this. There is this, and you can see this in the legislation they're trying to push as well as the testimonies that they're doing. There is this pervading sense of guilt within the U.S. government that they did not act fast enough on social media. And that led to misinformation that led to Donald Trump that led to all these things. And if you ask me, it's just a game of chess and they took that to their advantage and said, oh, we need more control over this stuff when that's just what they're going for anyway. No politician's going to waste a tragedy. It's the underlying thought there. But based off the hearing from the OpenAI founder and the questions that were being asked, I think they're taking that a lot more seriously than they've taken other pieces of technology in the past. And that's based off of the legislation, again, being proposed some of the questions, some of the thought stuff that's out there. And Sam Maltman went on record and said, I want you guys to regulate us. I want our industry to not be pushing forward as fast as they are, because no matter how fast politicians regulate, the technologists are going to innovate faster than that. And I want to say Elon Musk has said something very similar. I could be wrong there. Feel free to fact check me on that one. But when you have the heads of these companies, when you have all these people who are spearheading these initiatives calling for regulation, that should say something. And whether they're 
right or not, whether they're you know fully on board or whether just being overly cautious. I think the point is the world governments are taking it at least more seriously than they have in the past based off of how we've seen the Mac. Mark, you started a business, started a com- chatbot company. You sell ChatGPT courses. One of the questions you asked me before we got on the air here today was, so Keith, how did you find me? And I believe that in, in, it's clear to me that in 2023 and soon to be 2024 and the future, and you said it best, that the, the tools to create have never been more widely accessible. The barrier to entry has been easier than ever. To start a company in today's day and age, you are actually starting a media company. Would you agree? I think if not explicitly, implicitly, yes. They say content is king and eyeballs are currency, all those types of things. And I, to a certain extent, I agree with that. So regardless of what you do, especially if you're doing a brand on the internet, then yeah, you will, if you underplay your media in any capacity, your bottom line will reflect that. That's been my observation as well over the last two years as I've built my company. So as somebody's listening to this and they're thinking, okay, so then Mark, then what do you do? What, I'm sorry, what did you do about that? And then you asked me before we got on the show, you said, Keith, how did you find me? So you recognize, and here's where I'm going with this, Mark. You recognize that, okay, I'm building this business and people need to know who I am. People need to trust me. People need to ask, say, okay, well, then who, who's this Mark Bartel guy? And why should I trust him? Why, who is he? So you reached out, you said to me, Keith, how did you find me? So somewhere in your head, you said, okay, I need to go and be on podcasts. So you put yourself out there, didn't you? And, and how has that worked for you? Because I think a lot of people, Mark, are scared to do that. A lot of people are scared to say, you can put yourself out there to be on podcasts. Like you can sign up to be on podcasts as a guest and to build your brand. I don't think many people consider that option because it's putting myself up on stage, but I think you need to do that in today's day and age. So to somebody sitting here listening, how did you recognize that? Okay, I'm going to go put myself on these podcast lists and how's it worked out for you? So I'll say the biggest misconception I had to overcome when entering the podcasting circuit was it's only for famous people. It's only for people who've got really cool stories or memoirs, all those types of things. It's for anybody who will give you a microphone, I think is the best way to describe it. One of my goals in 2023 was to be on more stages, whether that's in-person stages, talking at conferences, hopping on podcasts. I just wanted to get in front of more people. And I found this to be my country model, as they say. That's the easiest stages to get on. And I think you found me on matchmaker.fm. It was recommended to me by a buddy. I first started on that platform, I think in like early 2022. And I reached out to, I think maybe 10 or so podcast hosts and I went over 10, like nobody, nobody wanted to talk to me initially. And so I put a pause on it, forgot about it. And then about a year later, I revisited it. And at that point I had a lot more interesting things to say. AI specifically was a lot more hyped up because of chat GPT. So right. I could, a lot more people were looking for people to talk about AI, but I also just found, I found a way to make my story more concise, more marketable. And I just started, I basically did what I did a year earlier. I just refined my pitch a little bit and all of a sudden I'm getting on a lot more stages. I think you're the second or third person that's reached out to me and invited me on a stage, but I've been on, I'd say eight or nine podcasts over the last couple of months. And the goal initially was to see if I could produce deals and all those types of things. But I was reading 10X by Grant Cardone and I love this guy's take the prisoner's attitude. I'm not going to read this book, but he specifically talks about when he was getting going in his business, he hopped on podcasts for no reason other than exposure. He said, in a world of, in a world of all these voices and all this noise, notoriety is what you want to fight for. And 
lack of exposure is what's going to kill your business, basically. Like he said in a much cooler way than that, mm. but his basic idea was just get on as many stages as you can, talk to as many people as you can, shout from the rooftops. If people start to complain that your marketing is too over, overbearing, good. That means you're doing stuff right. Now we're up a little bit more. So this guy was absolutely shameless in his marketing pitch and it worked for him. The guy's world renowned. He's worth billions of dollars and he is, for better or for worse, he is like one of the top real estate moguls in the world. And whether people like his approach, whether his approach, they cannot deny the efficiency of what he's done. Taking that was taking that idea and really just reflecting on it was one of the other reasons why I really want to get on the podcasting circuit, learn how to speak, get in front of people, meet lots of cool hosts and just run with it. I, I would say that you're one out of the 100, so I, but perhaps even more simple. If, if you put a hundred people in a room, 99 of them are not putting their hand up to go be on a podcast. Nine people out of a hundred are not creators. That to me is the opportunity. So get over your, not get over yourself, but if one can get over themselves rhetorically and find the confidence to get out there, either in front of the camera or in front of the microphone, you're already ahead of 98, 99 other people that aren't going to do that. And that to me is the opportunity. And it struck me when Elon bought Twitter, turns it into X and Everybody's predicting the world's going sideways because he now owns X. And somebody so eloquently put said at this time in the platform, there's been no better time to go build a business there because everybody's leaving and those that are still there still need content and 99% of them aren't going to be creating content. So go create content there to get paid. And it's, it's really true. Out of 100 people, 99 people will sit there and observe. That's why television works the way it works, right? And so the fact that you stepped out and said, no, no I need distribution. Because distribution is the key to business today. If you, have, you can be the greatest rapper. You can be the greatest engineer on the planet, Mark. You can be the greatest engineer there is. But if nobody knows about you, you are of no value. We, one of the big philosophies here in the Business Athlete Performance Lab is this idea of weaving athleticism into business. Because if, if you can't be an athlete first, your business is not going to thrive next. And what I mean by athlete is, no, you're not, you don't, you're not looking for gold medals. It's just this mindset of your human taking mm -hmm. care of your human, your wellness, your emotional state, your physical state, your strength, all of those reflections in the mirror before you can get into your business. Mm -hmm. Do you share that same philosophy? Do you live a business athlete lifestyle? One, one thousand. Like I can rant about this for, you know, the next couple hours, honestly. But when I was in grad school, I had an Indian classmate and this guy was a professional bullshitter. We had so much fun together making stuff up in class sometimes, but we'd go rock climbing together. And he was talking, he was joking about it, about writing cover letters, talking about his ability to problem solve as a climber. And first of all, that's really funny. That's stupid. But when I thought deep about it, I thought that actually makes a lot of sense because when you're facing a rock wall, every foot positioning, every movement of the hand, you are solving to get from A to B. It could be the roundabout way. It could be the long way. You could try to go directly, but you might not have as much of a grip or you're hanging by one hand or something. And it's all about deciding how you're going to approach problems. And to take this back to my own business, there's this idea out there. And you can also see this when you're taking cold showers. I don't know if you've ever done one of those cold shower challenges. When you do 30 days of cold showers, every time you get in the shower, there's this moment of, I'm about to do this. Like your, your body does not want to do it. It's going to be uncomfortable, but you do it anyway. And that, that feeling, if you can train your body to ignore that in, in your mind as well, in whatever capacity. That could be cold showers. That could be going to the gym. Building a business is learning how to manage all those things on a day-to-day -day basis. Because everything 
especially in the beginning, everything about business is learning how to do things you don't know how to do, knowing you're going to suck, knowing it's probably going to be embarrassing. It's not going to go like you wanted. And if you're one of those, if you're one of those people who did really well in school, who just flew through everything and never really had to try, or you naturally got good grades, you're not going to, you're not going to get those same types of successes as fast as you used to. I remember naively thinking when I first started my business, maybe I could have an easy pathway. Maybe I won't need to be battle tested. Now it's fake news. Every entrepreneur healthcare needs to get battle tested, but specifically as it pertains to the athletics, when you go and you do a workout, especially when you're hitting your one work maxes and you're pushing yourself really hard. Every time you get under the bar, every time you sit down in one of those leather seats, you are psyched. Your body's almost hesitating to do it. At least mine is. This is going to be painful. It's going to suck. And there's no way around it. You just simply have to go right through it until you get to the other side. And being consistent in the gym, doing the cold showers as much for all that stuff helps train your mind to look past psychologically all the discomfort that comes, quite frankly, anything in life. Asking a girl out, asking a guy out, getting married, having kids, all those things that leads to uncertainty can be much more effectively managed if you can overcome that knee-jerk reaction that your body has to hesitate when there's no way around something. Yeah, again, we could rant about this particular phenomenon for the next couple hours. But fully what? agree and fully believe if your business is going well, if your time in the gym is going well, your time as a business owner is going to go much better. Well said. Said. What does your day look like when it comes to a daily structure for you? Is it are you a morning workout guy? And again, to, I just I, I like to remind listeners and people in the audience here that. This is not about trying to go and lift 500 pounds. It's to me, the gym is this metaphor for whether it's yoga, Pilates, you, you need some strength training because strength is the foundation for your body, frankly. So you have to do some strength training, but yes, it's, it's strength, it's cardio, it's yoga, it's Pilates, it's stretching, it's endurance, all these metaphors. Are you a morning guy, evening guy, afternoon guy? Are you an overnight guy? Like, where do you, where does it fit into your world when you're like, okay, I got to take care of myself first. It's non-negotiable for Mark. It's, I got to take care of myself. When, when does that happen for you, Mark? So I tried multiple times to do early morning workouts and those I struggled to do consistently. I, I've been a night owl since, since I really started studying seriously back in high school. And back when I was in corporate, I would go to the gym right after work because it was right there. We had our corporate office and then in the basement was a really nice gym. Yeah, all the year I could have asked for was there. So back in that stage of life, I'd finish up the work at around six o'clock. I'd go to the gym three or four times a week and that was it. These days, my best workouts are done at night. That's typically when it's quietest. It also allows me to go home, take a nice shower, and then go straight to bed. You can, your body needs rest, your body needs to recover, and... I personally found it's easier to just go straight to bed and get that rest immediately rather than move throughout the day with the energy. Granted, you can have breakfast and all those things. And that's fine. But I personally found the night workouts typically work better for me. And that's... I think as of now, it's mostly like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, full body circuits. Tried doing back day, yes. day, leg day. And the challenge I have with those comes down to my desire to do it all correctly. Like getting, having enough time to get to the gym four or five times, that requires a level of dedication that you have to climb to. If you just, like the biggest thing holding most people back from going to the gym is, I don't have time to go five times a week. Okay, then go once or twice. Go like work your way to four or five times because once you worked your way there, being in the gym four times, five times a week is not going to be nearly as much of a time commitment as you think it is because your body will need it a lot more than it needs it now. 
And the challenge that I've had is consistently hitting all four, all five of those workouts consistently. And so then some body part legs behind. I typically like to structure the body part workouts like the hardest one of the easiest. So legs first, back second, chest third, and then arms is usually last. And then if I have time, I'll do cardio or supplemental ab work or something for the fifth one. I, since switching to the full body circuits, it's been a lot easier to, to not beat myself up as much if I miss them. Cause if I only hit the gym twice in a week, or if I aim for five times, you don't hit a four, I still hit the full body multiple times per week. So nothing's getting left out and it's still a pretty well-rounded work. That's been my experiences with it. I think Alex Hormozzi was the first one who shared that bit of wisdom. And the guy's a freaking mountain of a human being. I don't know if you've watched his stuff, mm. but that was, I first started cheering that a couple months ago. So it went really well. So that's my current gym schedule. Yeah, I, I believe Mark, whether it's morning, afternoon, evening, uh, you need to find the routine that works for you and then build that routine and structure into your life and stick with it. I'm a morning, I, I need to, that's the non-negotiable time for me. It's from my 4.40 alarm to essentially 10 a.m. I don't take meetings anytime before that. I'll, I'll get work done on this device, but even then I need to take, daddy needs to take care of himself first. I got to take care of my human so that I can go and take care of all of you for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Because if I don't take care of me first, everything else in front of me becomes very irrelevant. Everything else in front of me deteriorates really fast because I'm shedding years of longevity if I don't take care of myself today. So it yeah. took me a long time to recognize that I needed to, it took me a long time to have that awareness of the importance of that. But now it's the goal is I want to go tobogganing with my kids when I'm 80 years old. It's totally. that really becomes the, the big ambition. Hey, Mark, we've been chewing on this for an hour. I've thoroughly enjoyed our chat. I got a question for you. Has anybody ever told you you look like Austin Post Malone? I've gotten that once or twice. I've gotten, I shouldn't say this live on the air. I've gotten the Sir Tumnus character from... The line that went to the wardrobe once or twice. They used to have much more curly hair. Okay. So like back, I was a dancer in college. That was my. Very cool. That was my avenue. I did swing dancing and I did a little bit of Latin and then Indian classical. You can imagine me on a fifth stage school of Indian Americans. But back then I let my hair grow a lot more. Yeah. A lot of my dancers like, oh, you look like Mr. Tillman's. So I've gotten that. I've got a couple others. I get called Mark Mark the Funky Bunch quite a bit. Yeah. But yeah, it's from the gamut. That's, that's awesome. I, I bring it up because I'm looking at you here for the last hour. I'm thinking, this guy looks like somebody I know. I'm looking at your picture in front of me too. And I'm like, you look like somebody I know. And I'm thinking, you look like Post Malone without all the tats on your face. I've gotten that once or twice. It's one of the less common ones, but I've received it. Mark, any final comments you want to make on the show? Anything you want to pitch to the audience? Anything we can cut up and get onto the socials that you want to pitch your show? I'm sorry, you want to pitch your, any product you're selling or the course that you've got in the marketplace? This is your chance, your platform to you give back to the audience something that, that you think would be a value to them that I have not uncovered today in our chat. One of my defaults when I talk about this is I run a course called Ultimate Chat GPT Mastery at ultimatechatgptmastery.com. And that's basically a six-week course on how to go from complete technological novice, like how do you turn on a computer levels of technology to actively leveraging chat GPT and these AI tools for your brand in ways that are replicable for your team, but also able to be understood by you and everybody else there. And we cover everything from how to navigate the space, how to write with these tools, how to research with these tools, how to put that and turn that into deliverables for your business, how to connect those to other tools that do other things and what the ethics of all the software looks like as well. So we do it every couple months or do a new batch pretty soon, but great. great to see you guys there. That'd be awesome. That's great. Thanks for sharing that uh, with us, Mark. We're live in the lab with Keith Billis and Mark Bartell. We're going to close up shop here today in the lab here. I'm going to 
find us some tunes to play us out here. If I got the old, I'm on a new setup today, as you, as anybody who's watching can see that we've been running a different setup last couple of weeks. So what's going to play us out of the room here today? Oh, a little bit of a uh, little bit of Penguins by Daniel Friedel there. What do you think of that, Mark? I just did a little random choice of music and it pops the old Daniel Fredelli with Penguins. I like it. There you go. Keith Bill, it's live in the lab. Why don't you come join us tomorrow? We have Dr. Lynn Anderson joining us in the lab. I guess our first doctor, actually. Mark, we haven't had a doctor in the lab before. So we're going from engineer with Mark Biloff to Dr. Lynn Anderson tomorrow, live in the lab, live in the Business Athlete Performance Lab. Mark, thanks for, thanks for jumping in today. Stick around for a second while I say goodbye to the audience. And hey, I'm Keith Billis. I'm live in the lab. I'm live in the Business Athlete Performance Lab. Thanks for tuning in today. Hope you enjoyed the chat with myself and Mark Bartell talking about AI and chat GPT and as he said, check out the ultimate chat GPT course that he sells. If you're looking to become an expert in AI and learning about chat GPT, we'll be pushing stuff on our socials, LinkedIn, Instagram, subscribe to the show. As everybody says, it helps pay the bills. Subscribe to the show first. That would be fantastic. There's the button up there. Is them there? It's somewhere on the page. You guys know where it is, but subscribe to the show. That'd be fantastic. We run daily live in the lab, noon central time, Monday to Friday, noon minus five GMT. I'm Keith Billis. I'm live in the lab. I'm live in the Business Athlete Performance Lab.